Good morning. Our passage today is Psalm 78, and we're going to be looking at verses 34 through 41, so I encourage you to turn there. Let's stand as we read God's Word together. Psalm 78, 34 through 41. God's Word says, In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe, so he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for what we learn from it and how we are changed by it. And so I pray that that would be true today as well. Lord, help us to listen, to hear, to apply, to love your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, for the past two weeks, we've looked at the subject of anger as it is presented in the Psalms as well as in other parts of the Bible. And two weeks ago, we examined primarily God's holy anger. And last week, we asked and answered the question, can a Christian be righteously angry? And we determined that a Christian can be righteously angry, but we examined many ways in which we are tempted to take what is in reality sinful anger and call it righteous Well, today, as we see in our morning's passage, God was angry with Israel. A few months ago, we read the first portion of this psalm and understood that it is what's called a teaching or a didactic psalm that is intended by Asaph, the author, to encourage parents, particularly fathers, to teach their children about the past. And so what we have throughout this psalm are these poignant stories, these hard stories that reveal how Israel failed time and again to trust and obey the Lord. And so we discover that the Israelites turned to false gods, idols, were not faithful to the covenant God who had made faithful, loyal promises to them. And as verse 36 says, despite all the wonders in rescuing the people, The Israelites flattered him with their mouths. They lied with their tongues, it says, and their heart was not steadfast toward him. A a great contrast to what we see over and over again in the Psalms, the steadfast love of the Lord, that phrase you will see over and over again. But the Israelites were the exact opposite. But verse 38 is equally important in this Psalm. It stands out. I, I mentioned the background, the context of the Psalm from a prior sermon because... The psalm is set with this context of failure after failure, faithlessness after faithlessness, lies, and so on. And it says, yet he, 
being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. And so what we discover is that mercy is is not incompatible with anger. God is very angry in this psalm and in other psalms, but mercy is not incompatible with anger, but rather can operate alongside of anger. And Psalm 78 provides a partial model for us, and the scriptures provide even more as we realize this morning. So just as we did last week in utilizing Christian author's definition for anger, Robert Jones, I'd like to use a different author, David Pallison's definition for mercy. And what he says is mercy is constructive displeasure expressed through four key aspects, patience, forgiveness, charity, and constructive conflict. Now, when I read that definition, I was intrigued. It's very different than most definitions you would see for mercy. And it led me to uh, read some more from him. And actually, his, his thoughts helped focus my own thoughts for today's sermon. And so when Paulison speaks of constructive displeasure, what he means is that it is possible to express displeasure with something in ways that prove constructive. Last week, we talked about anger being against something, namely against perceived evil. We also said that the intention of anger is to remove or or cancel or destroy that evil. Well, mercy is compatible with anger in that it is displeased with or against perceived evil. Just like anger. But mercy's goals are not just to remove, cancel, or destroy that evil. They are equally concerned with solving the problem that created the evil in the first place. So think, for example, about a doctor. Any doctor worthy of his calling would be said to be angry, if you will, with the disease that affects his or her patient. And the disease there is an evil to the body, and the doctor rightly wants to remove and destroy the disease. But where mercy enters this picture is that the doctor also wants to diagnose what is causing the problem in the first place so that the disease does not come back. So if we take that analogy and put it in the context of the scriptures, in Matthew 9, 9, we read, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so in this passage, Jesus compares himself to a doctor. The tax collectors and sinners were terminally ill. They were under the curse of sin, and and the Pharisees were terminally ill also. 
and Jesus as the Son of God was angry against sin in all three groups. But in his mercy, Jesus spent time with the tax collectors and sinners to let them know that he was going to address and deal with the sin that he was angry with. Does that make sense? If God simply dealt with sin in his anger, all of us would be in hell. But God is also merciful, and he addresses our problem through Christ. Sadly, those who don't think they have a problem in the first place, like the Pharisees, will not receive his mercy. They don't want it. And it may be that many of you left last week's sermon willing to ask hard questions about the times that you're angry, and perhaps you have come to the conclusion that 90% of the time you have been dealing with sinful anger, but that 10% of the time is righteous anger. Is that the end of the discussion? No, it's not the end of the discussion because we need to ask what role mercy should play when we are righteously angry. After all, we must desire to model God and God who in our morning's passage is described as compassionate, atoning for sin, not destroying his people, restraining his anger often, not stirring up all of his wrath, serves for us a model that we must say, how does this all work together? How do we have a righteous anger and a compassionate mercy coexisting side by side? Well, what we saw in that definition by Paulson, which I think is a biblical one, was were four factors or aspects that flesh out mercy. They were patience, forgiveness, charity, and constructive conflict. And we see these four in Psalm 78. The first is patience. And where we see it in the psalm is where it says in verse 38 that God restrained his anger often. Patience, certainly long-suffering, is implied also in verse 41 when it says that the Israelites tested him again and again and again. Clearly God thought that the Israelites' disobedience was wrong. He was angry as a result. He wasn't indifferent to their disobedience. He didn't stifle a yawn and look the other way, right? But he did at times restrain his anger. In fact, he restrained his anger often. And it reminds me of what we read in Exodus 34, 6, when God, as he passes before Moses, describes himself as slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And we know from the rest of Psalm 78, as I mentioned, during times of Israel's rebellion, God frequently restrains his anger, does not stir up all of his wrath, because to do so would have been to destroy his people. But he had made a covenantal promise to set apart a nation of people to himself. And in the book of Ezekiel, God tells Ezekiel that the only way for a loyal, obedient, and faithful people to exist will be to give them a new heart, a new faith, and to put his own spirit in them to do his goodwill and pleasure. So he had a plan, but that plan would take many centuries to accomplish and that's why 2 Peter 3 says, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill this promise as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach 
repentance. I want you to catch that last sentence because what drives patience and ultimately mercy is the desire that all should reach repentance. And that makes for a good segue into looking at how mercy operates in our own times of anger. I suggested last week that in the midst of your anger, an important question to ask is, what do I want? What do I want? What is my hope here in the midst of this anger? Is it control? Is it respect? Is it release? Is it revenge? Well, what about repentance? And I don't mean repentance towards you. I mean repentance towards God. When we desire the right things, like someone's repentance towards God, we are more likely to be patient. After all, restraining the fullness of our anger means that we continue to bear with difficult spouses or children or parents because we believe that sometimes the fruit of repentance, probably most of the time, takes time to develop. It's much easier, isn't it, just to get angry, even righteously angry, and be done with it. But patience is needed because life is full of frustrations and hurts and injustices. And in response to such attacks, love suffers long, it forbears under the strain. Well, how do you do that? How do you extend merciful patience to a, a spouse with whom you are angry? Well, remember that God is sovereign, that he has demonstrated his faithfulness to you, that he has given you every blessing in Christ, and because of this, you can bear up under the load of loving, difficult family members, employers, employees, neighbors, friends. Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy 2 that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. There it is again. God may perhaps... Grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So merciful patience, it's needed when dealing with people's many weaknesses and failures. We have to have patience to bear with those who may be slow to learn, resistant to change, weak in faith, quick to complain, forgetful of their responsibilities, fearful, you, you name it. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we are to admonish the idle and encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. But then Paul adds, and be patient with all of them. And that doesn't imply passivity. It doesn't imply a refusal to confront sin or problems. Without his patient leadership, Paul and the Corinthians might have gone separate ways. You read through 1 Corinthians and you go, wow, that's a lot of problems. But instead, his firm yet patient handling of the problems ended up preserving their relationship. And when the Corinthians then unjustly criticize him, Paul doesn't give up. He doesn't cut them off. He doesn't become vindictive and say, I'll, I'll just, fine, I'll just spend another year in Ephesus. You know, he, 
He doesn't return evil for evil. He doesn't grow overtly angry or bitter or withdraw. Instead, he answers their criticisms. He confronts their sins. He warns of discipline, but he does so in a loving, compassionate, patient way. Even more remarkable is what we read in this. He says in 2 Corinthians 6, 3, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, right? It's a synonym with patience and long-suffering and afflictions, hardships, calamities, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit. That's how you do it, genuine love. And what patience does is it keeps us kind. Even in the midst of righteous anger, it keeps us trusting despite the setbacks. It keeps us on a long-term view rather than in the short-term heat of the moment. Question is, are you struggling in a marriage or relationship where it seems like your spouse does not change despite your prayers? Love is patient. Keep praying. Are you frustrated with a stubborn child who is not responding to biblical training and parenting? Love is patient. Keep parenting. Are you ready to give up with a relative or a friend or a a neighbor who makes one poor choice after another? Love is patient. Keep exhorting. Pallison's second factor of mercy is forgiveness, and the heart of forgiveness can be found in another psalm, in Psalm 103, verse 8, a, a psalm actually much like today's psalm, where it says, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. So anger exacts justice. It is concerned with fairness. God in his anger fully expressed his wrath against our sin when Jesus died in our place on the cross. But mercy is graciously unfair in that God does not deal with us according to our sins even though that would be perfectly fair. Well, what about when we're angry? How do we show this forgiveness? Ephesians 4.32 tells us that we must forgive one another just as God and Christ has forgiven us. And that tells us that forgiveness must be modeled after God's own heart. It means that forgiveness is more than a declaration or a feeling. Because we learn from Isaiah 43 and Jeremiah 31 that God does not remember our sins. And we know that doesn't mean that God somehow forgets things. That would imply that God's omniscience has been compromised. Rather, it must mean that God commits to not holding our sins against us. Well, in our own anger, forgiveness is a commitment to not hold an offense against someone else once we have forgiven them. And surprisingly, Jesus tells his disciples in Luke 17, you know this one, that if a brother sins against you to rebuke him, there's the righteous anger part. And if he repents to forgive him, there's the mercy part. 
And if he sins against you seven times a day and seven times in a day returns saying, I repent, you shall still forgive him. There's the impossible God level mercy part. And in Mark 11, 25, we read, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And we learn a few things from this. One is if we are unwilling to forgive others, we can't expect God to forgive us. So our commitment to forgive has to be genuine even if we don't feel like it. And certainly a brother who comes repenting seven times in one day for the same offense would not generate positive feelings, right? We must be truly ready to let go of the offense. Second, there, has, there seems to be a connection between forgiveness and prayer, such that by praying we can seek to be ready to forgive. And third, the very act of praying reminds us that we too are sinners. It helps us in coming to our brother as a fellow sinner. And all of this is what it means to have a heart of, of merciful forgiveness. Paul in 2 Corinthians 2 says, we are to comfort those whom we forgive. We are to re- reaffirm our love. That suggests that if merciful forgiveness attends our righteous anger, then an important goal that we should have is to end up with a better relationship than before as a result of our confrontation. Please hear that part. If merciful forgiveness is accompanying our righteous anger, then one of our goals is that as a result of this confrontation, our relationship will be better than before. Wow, you say, does mercy cancel out all the consequences of sin that led us to be angry in the first place? It does not. When David sinned against God, God forgave him, but there was still a consequence to the sin. A person who steals property, for example, as part of true repentance, has to return the property, usually with interest. An elder who commits a grievous sin, though he may confess and repent and be restored into the confidence of the body, may still in the greater interest of 1 Timothy 1 and or Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3 have to step down from his position. You know, there are consequences. If a person has lied to us, there may need to be a period of rebuilding trust. There, there are consequences, but don't let the reality of that make you forget that mercy, as expressed in the face of our anger, vertically encourages repentance towards God in those whom we confront and horizontally improves our relationships. In the minority of times that you've been righteously angry, how many times did you consider those objectives? Pallison's third factor defining mercy is charity. And charity is an act of generosity or kindness that is undeserved or at least unearned. It together with forgiveness is reflected in today's psalm where we read that God being compassionate atoned for their iniquity. The Israelites did not earn or deserve God's atoning for them. And then a few verses later we were reminded that God did not destroy the Israelites because he remembered that they were but flesh. A wind that passes and comes not again and implied 
in his charity towards his people is this compassion, this love that moves him to care for people that cannot save themselves. Jesus told his disciples in Luke 6, 27, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. There is no greater charity than to love your enemy, to do good for those who hate you and bless those who curse you. I can't think of a more undeserved and unearned set of actions, and yet Jesus directs us to do these things because they imitate his charity towards us. So when it comes to your righteous anger, how does charity work? Well, we've seen the merciful patience allows you to suffer injustice for a long time. Because you know that sanctification and relationship development and repentance towards God are long-term projects. We've seen how merciful forgiveness approaches conflict with a heart that is ready to forgive and a remembrance of the great forgiveness that we have been shown. There's this, even in the midst of angrily confronting true sin, true evil, there is this desire, let us, let us solve, let's, let's become better again, let's let our relationship be restored because this is not a comfortable moment. If you find yourself angry for long, long time periods, that is not a natural or a place where God wants you to be. Merciful charity looks for ways to show kindness even in the midst of conflict. It remembers that the one with whom we are angry is imperfect. He or she is challenged by their own weaknesses, just like we are. And if, as Jesus says, we can do good to those who hate us, can we not treat our spouse with kindness even when we're angry? We are told that the kindness of God leads to repentance. Might that not help as well in bringing peace in the midst of conflict? When you were last angry, was your thought in the moment, how can I, despite being offended, show kindness? Or were you thinking, how could you get retribution? Did you think to stop and pray, to offer a hug, to affirm your affection? Are those easy things? No, <laughs> those are not easy things. And it's because we're sinners. Probably because the 10% of the time that you thought you were righteously angry is probably more like 0.01% of the time. You know, we're doing a COVID deal on, the, on righteous anger. How's that? 0.01%. I don't know what it is. But the reality is it is so easy. The heart is so deceptively wicked, isn't it? And I suffer the same things. Did this morning. I had an opportunity, I'm preaching on this this morning, I had the opportunity to really model so that Wendy could come and say, sweetheart, you are a perfect husband. <laughs> Don't laugh too hard at that particular comment. <laughs> but there was the opportunity for her to say, you know, obviously you're learning from the things that you're preaching on, but it doesn't happen. So I know how hard... I know how hard this is. But God's 
promised that his spirit will indwell you to will and to do his good pleasure. He's promised that he will, that he is there for you to rely upon, to depend upon, that his strength is available to you. And Paulus' final factor was constructive conflict. And I'll let him define what he means by that, by quoting him. He writes, forthright problem solving goes about seeking to right what is wrong. Constructive anger steps into wrongs with conviction and force. It tackles evil head on. It means a willingness to start a necessary conflict in order to solve a real problem. It means a willingness to go through the messy process of engaging in constructive conflict to actually make peace where open wrong, hostility, and destruction operate is the hardest and best work in the world. And what I like about those thoughts is that it reminds us that mercy is not tolerance. It's not a free pass. It's not looking the other way. Anger says, this is wrong and I'm against it. Mercy says the same thing, but then says, let's solve it. Let's make something good out of this something bad. An important question in this area is, are any of you in your anger withdrawing from conflict? Do you perhaps hit and run, which what I mean by that is, do you say your peace and then want to be left alone? That's not constructive conflict. Instead, it's saying, you hurt me and I want you to know it. Don't do it again. And just so you remember it, I'm going to punish you for a while. That's what that says. And in the meantime, the underlying issues aren't dealt with because the work involved seems too painful and too difficult. Isn't it interesting to think that it might be merciful to actually go through the pain of problem solving so that perhaps you will be less likely to experience the same issues again? And by merciful, I don't just mean self-serving so that you don't have to go through the pain yourself, but merciful because you have been able to work with the one offending you to solve a problem so that it won't trouble either one of you in the future. That's a mercy. And I hope you can see from these aspects of of mercy is patience and forgiveness and charity and constructive conflict that it's not enough to just be righteously angry over evil. Especially with our believing brothers and sisters in Christ, our desire should be to simultaneously, in mercy, work to build and improve relationship, strengthen relationship, glorify God. And undoubtedly, some of you may be saying to yourselves that it's hard enough to do these things, but it's impossible to do them when they are not received well when they are met with resistance or coldness. What do you do then? Well, first realize that God doesn't measure your success in terms of results. God doesn't measure success in terms of results, but in terms of faithful obedience. That was a hard lesson for me to learn over many years in in, it doesn't just apply here. It applies in all of life. 
Success, for example, as a pastor is not thousands of people in a church. It's faithful obedience to God to preach the truth and to love people, to care for their souls. That's success. Isaiah didn't have anybody listen to him, but he was successful because he obeyed the Lord. And that principle applies in so many different areas. In this area, it applies by realizing that the response of the one that you are confronting in mercy, in anger, righteous anger, if they respond poorly, that is not an unsuccessful thing. If you have responded with patience, forgiveness, charity, constructive conflict, that is faithful. And God knows that you cannot force people to act a certain way, therefore he is not holding you accountable for their actions or the ultimate outcome of a conflict. What God expects is that you obey his will as faithfully as possible and reflect rightly his attributes of anger and mercy. Second, don't let mercy rejected cause your anger to spiral into bitterness and cynicism. You are a blood-bought, redeemed, profoundly forgiven person to whom God has given every spiritual blessing in Christ. And if you are firmly anchored in Christ, the evils of this world, including offenses by other people, setbacks and relationships, all of those things that cause stress and disappointment and frustration, any number of actions, they ought to cause you to trust even more in the Lord not to become worsely entrenched in bitterness. They should drive you to your knees in prayer. They should cause you to thank God for his forgiveness, to drink deeply from the well of his strength. Because this is a war, as we've talked about so many times. This is a spiritual war, and we are fighting for victory to the glory of God. Leviticus 19, 16 says, In righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slander among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or hear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. And Leviticus tells us we can't hate our brother in a heart. We are not to gossip or slander against our brother or sister. We are not to bear grudges against them in our relationships. Brother, we are to love them as ourselves. And applying that thinking to your spouse or your child or your parent or your friend is really important because that's where it becomes difficult, but real. Twice God reminds us with the words, I am the Lord. And it anchors us again with realizing he intends our anger and mercy to be an expression of our submission to him. Right? The way we treat people, the way we work through conflict, the way we deal with our anger, with accompanying mercy, is all meant to be an example and a model of the way God is to us, 
It is in those moments, not only sanctifying moments for those who have been already saved, but it is redeeming moments for those who have not. The world is watching. God is to be glorified. We cannot love our neighbor as ourselves if we do not first love God above all else. And it may be, it may be that the struggle in applying these things, and this is where you have to be soberly honest with yourself, it may be that the struggle here is the strength of your love for God. Because we cannot love our neighbor as ourselves if we do not first love God above all else, with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Because our willingness to lapse into sinful anger, to hold back mercy, to withdraw in self-pity, to grow bitter and resentful, all of it reveals something deeper than a lack of love for his people. It exposes a lack of love for the Lord. We no longer serve as his ambassadors in relationships when we use relationships for our own purposes. Where we treat them as places where our needs are met or simply places that we have to endure and try to survive. And I close with this. I I mentioned a second ago that the world is watching, but Ephesians 3.10 reminds us that the church is watching Principalities and powers are watching. Everything, everything, all things are watching to see if God's manifold wisdom in creating the world, in redeeming a people, in sending his son as an atoning sacrifice was wise. Or was it foolish? And it's a lofty calling to be reminded by Paul in Ephesians 3 that we are living out on a stage. It humbles me to think that I have to soberly evaluate my anger. What does it reveal about my love for the Lord? What about my unwillingness to work through this in mercy? What about my lack of patience and my lack of charity and my lack of a forgiving heart? What does it say? about my love for the Lord and what am I communicating in my actions? I encourage you that if you have been struggling with utilizing anger to vent, to retaliate, to withdraw, become a people of mercy. Look to the Lord for the strength to do these things. And in our final look next week at this topic, of anger, we will answer the question, why am I so prone to anger and how do I fix this in myself? Let's pray. Father, you are a gracious and good God who loves us, who's given us so much more than we deserve. All these things that you desire of us, patience, mercy, forgiveness, peace, making, you have done towards us. 
Thank you, Lord, that you are abounding in steadfast love. Thank you, Lord, that you are compassionate, that you do restrain your anger, that you do atone for our iniquity, that you do remember that we are frail. And then, Lord, help us to do the same in our relationships. And may you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.